Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, uh, as, he, uh, as he is every week, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I know every week, uh, listener, that I say that uh, what Dave Cameron does, what uh, Fangraphs managing editor uh, Dave Cameron does, is to is to analyze all baseball. And I know that uh, uh, perhaps to, to some of you at least that sounds like an instance of hyperbole. I know that I'm aware of that. I I see uh, I see how it must seem to you, which is why it is with uh, some reservations. However, uh, also with with complete confidence that I say in this edition of Fangraph Studio, what Dave Cameron does is uh, is to analyze not necessarily 100% of baseball or all of baseball, but actually 110% of baseball. That's impossible. This or that listener might be thinking. Uh, well, in fact. As this edition of the podcast proves, uh, it's it not actually. It's, it, in fact, uh, what Dave Kim proves in the following episode of Fangraph Study was that it's not impossible to analyze 110% of all baseball. Just that rather it requires heart and uh, courage, probably uh, some manner of grit, some sort of grit, a type of grit that a person might have and want to, uh, wherein the words want and to are hyphenated. It's Fangraph Sadio. It features Fangraph's managing editor, Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. For reasons that are not even entirely clear to me, I, I thought that I was on Eastern Time, or I guess that everyone was on Central Time and neglected to call you. I, I know that uh, typically um, your appearances on Fangraph Studio uh, are really just a record of um, – or an account of the ways – the different ways in which you abuse me, usually not justified, but in this case, I think any abuse you have is justified. Yeah, I like the fact that when I was trying to get a hold of you to find out if we were recording a podcast, you weren't answering your phone or your email. You were retweeting things that you wrote on your own personal blog. You know, what you're saying is true, and I. but by juxtaposing those facts together, it's it's. Uh, I'm going to say it's – not a, it's not representative of what was actually. I mean, it's a fact. You're, you're, they're facts, but it's not. But the juxtaposition of those facts is, I think, is unfair. Uh, I'm sorry for pointing out that you were doing other things during your workday other than working. I shall yeah. report you to Appleman immediately. What are no. we talking? The, the little pay that we give you in the first place. Yeah. Well, we'll do. We'll we'll see what happens. Actually. Um, well, one thing that I was also a little bit excited about was I saw that uh, both Oliver and Steamer projections were are now available on the site. Maybe we can get to those briefly. I actually did uh, find time uh, at least to uh, to peruse, to browse uh, your post uh, um, on, recently on the site called Recent Examples of Replacement Level Player. But um, I actually want to ask you this. This is actually a question that's coming from the heart is um, over the last couple of days, in fact, uh, you've I guess you've been considering – this idea of wins above replacement. Um, I know that your post from Monday, uh, which is sort of examining what uh, what war accomplish, accomplishes, wins above replacement, what it really accomplishes, what its real use is. Uh, I know at some level that was um, in response to a post uh, by Jim Capel um, at ESPN. Uh, but today you're, you're examining this idea of replacement level. I'm wondering, I don't know, maybe besides the Jim Capel piece, if 
if uh, you think there's sort of an impetus or, or what might be prompting you to, to sort of consider broadly the notions of war? Yeah, I mean, the cable piece is obviously uh, a trigger, but, I, you know, I've had a decent amount of people asking me on, on Twitter or in various places um, kind of to establish why war is a, a valid thing or why replacement level is a valid baseline to compare people to. I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there about war, specifically some people who don't really like it or just maybe don't like the conclusions that, that war can lead to. Um, so they like to say things like, you know, about war being a theoretical construct or uh, just being a made-up number. Uh, I think you know, there's a decent amount of ideas floating around out there that, that some people have repeated or have heard. And, uh, you know, I think it's useful at times to point out, um, you know, kind of where these ideas come from and that we're not just making stuff up and we're not just throwing darts and trying to figure out the best formula we can and make Ben Zobrist the best player in baseball. Um, but, you know, there's actual logic behind these ideas, and they have been, you know, mostly vetted by... Um, objective people and, and kind of put through a, at least some kind of test for validity and, and you know, I think the idea of war um, is a good one and a good one to promote and I think, you know, when it's February there's nothing really going on in baseball, it's a, a pretty good time to kind of explain our, our thinking behind war and why it's a, a stat that we put a decent value on. Yeah, well, so um, the sort of main thrust of your piece uh, in response to, and I think I should let you note if I don't, that uh, you're not necessarily – you were not aggrieved by Capel's piece necessarily. No. Yeah, I mean, I like Jim Capel. I don't think he's a – you know, he's not a hack. He's not one of these guys out there who's just, um, you know, trying to lay, you know, claim to having all the insight and disregarding all bloggers and people in their mother's basement. I mean, Capel's a reasonable guy. Uh, you know, he admits that he had an MVP vote in the American League last year. He voted for Trout over Cabrera. It's not that he's, you know – way behind the times, but, and I think he's got a somewhat of a legitimate point. I mean, I've seen people out there on Twitter saying, you know, player X has 4.2 war and the other guy has 4.1 war, so therefore player X had a better season, and, you know, that's not how war was intended to be used. So I think, uh, you know, his overall point isn't entirely wrong. I think he got some things wrong on the way and uh, made some claims that I don't necessarily agree with, but overall I think they're, there can be a misuse of any statistic, whether it's war, ERA, or batting average, or whatever, and I think, uh, you know, it's helpful to have conversations about uh, what the point of using a statistic is and kind of how it should be best used. Right. Well, and I, and I thought the really smart thing you did was was essentially to note um, that this, uh, that war answers a question, right? And that question yeah. is about how good is, is player X or something like this. And that really, that's that's what all stats do. I, I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about that? And how, how long has that sort of been... Uh, been a, a way for you to think about about war or any of the baseball stats? Yeah, I mean, I think I, in the back of my mind, have always thought about stats that way, but I didn't really crystallize it into an article until Friday after I read Cable's column, and I kind of, you know, was trying to think about how to put together some sort of response that didn't come off as defensive. I didn't want to just, you know, attack the points he made and or attack, you know, ERA or other stats that you could have done a similar, even more aggressive takedown on, but, you know, try and write a response that um, somebody who agreed with Cable, or at least mostly agreed with Cable, would read and, you know, maybe take to heart and not just see as argumentative, but would, you know, maybe listen to the other side. And so um, tried to frame the idea of, of why we even invented war in the first place. And I think, you know, uh, realizing that war wasn't the first uh, uber stat, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, there have been a lot of different attempts at kind of creating an all-in-one overall value metric, not just in, you know, in baseball, but, you know, in the NFL, we have quarterback ratings in the NFL, which is, 
you know, become a pretty popular stat and pretty widely accepted, despite the fact that its scale makes no sense and it's kind <laughs> of a black box. And, uh, you know, I think people look at it and they're like, oh, a quarterback rating of 130, but they have no idea what that means. But it doesn't stop people from using it and kind of being this is the overall way to evaluate a quarterback. And uh, the NBA has PER and, you know, I mean, there's these kinds of stats in, in, every, in every sport. And I think, you know, um, the, the reality is, that question, you know, how good is this player, is this guy better than that guy, is kind of at the heart of every discussion we have. It's not that war was created to, you know, promote fan graphs and promote some kind of statistical idea, but it's that if it didn't exist, someone would create it because they want to know the answer to that question. I think maybe the the thing is, like, uh, PER, well, of course, actually, quarterback rating is a stat that you see posted on, for example, a broadcast. But I think that uh, this that is sort of, right, the ultimate kind of endorsement of a stat. Do you think that uh, – do you think it will ever be the case that a player's war is is posted on his batting line at a tel- television broadcast? I think we've already been there. I mean, you know, certain teams like the A's and Rays and um, other the more progressive mindsets have had that kind of worked into their television broadcast. And, um, you know, last year I know the Mariners uh, cited war on their – broadcast quite a bit. They might not necessarily put it on their line when the guy comes up to bat. They're certainly going to talk about it. Um, you know, they'll generally use it in uh, only uh, encouraging ways. So you're not going to see them say, you know, here comes replacement level Miguel Olivo to the plate. They'll use it to pop up a guy for an MVP vote or all-star validating, or they'll use it when it's uh, kind of on their side. Uh, but I do think we've seen it work this way in the broadcast. You know, yes, you to have it on their staff pages. I think at this point, war has become fairly ubiquitous and um, you know, it might not be as, as commonplace as something, you know, like batting ever yet, but it, it's not too far behind. And I think, you know, most people who are uh, following baseball with some intent have probably at least heard of war by this point. Can you give us, uh, you know, um, we're talking about, you know, war and in, in, um, the sort of, I guess, uh, where it stands now uh, at the beginning of 2003, uh, se- 2013 season. Not The 2003 season, it did not stand Many places. It was sitting mostly. Yeah. It was unborn. I think, I think at that point we had warped. Yeah, right. The okay. Uh, so with regard to this idea of replacement level, uh, yeah, you say that one of the criticisms of it is that it is, um, it is a, a theoretical construct. That's one of the, the that's one of the the um, the criticisms of it. Is that the case? And uh, in, apart from that, what does a replacement level player look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some validity to the idea that uh, war doesn't have a definition that was handed down on stone tablets from on high. I mean, you know, I think the fact that we use a different replacement level from baseball reference probably makes the difference seem larger than it is, and so people can look at, you know, some pretty large differences over a player's career and and think that, you know, the giant, the gaps in replacement level must be enormous just due to the quantity. Um, you know, Jack Morris was a conversation that some guys were having on Twitter on Friday night, uh, and, you know, pointing out that Jack Morris's career war on baseball offense was 39 and on Jack Morris was 57, and almost all of that can just be tied to the fact that we have a lower replacement level than they do. So, you know, for us, uh, there's going to be more war in a season to go around, and so Morris's war is higher essentially because we're using a different baseline than baseball references, and that can be a turnoff for people. And I understand that. I understand that uh, it would be better if we, if we could agree upon one number. Um, but I do think, you know, in going through – kind of the list of what I would consider to be freely available talent, which is guys who find minor league contracts um, that don't include, you know, uh, $3 million bonuses if they make the roster out of spring training, but just, you know, guys who sign non-roster invites or guys who are claimed on waivers, um, you know, multiple times and just 
you know, kind of the guys who would be freely available to some team who was just trying to go as cheap as possible and put together a big minimum roster, we can come up with a pretty good idea of what a replacement level team uh, or a replacement level player would look like. Um, and I think overall we see that it matches up pretty close to what our idea of a replacement level is, at least the one we use in Warren Finger. Right, and it looks like uh, you you went through and you did this, uh, finding a number of players who'd both had an X number of major league plate appearances over the last couple of seasons and also had been acquired what we might consider freely, which is a you know a minor league contract or uh, if or you know a uh, maybe a major league minimum contract. Uh, and I think they were worth what is it, over ten thousand plate appearances. They were worth uh, zero or negative zero point seven WAR. So over every six hundred plate appearances, basically zero. Yeah, I, I think what we can say is, you know, I just grabbed two dozen players. There's been more than that. I mean, you know, a lot of minor league can't contract and then every winner. But I was trying to find guys who spent enough time in the major leagues uh, in the last couple of years that we could actually kind of see what their major league performance was like in a, in a decent sample. And I think you see guys who you know, kind of fit this idea of, of kind of the last guy on the bench or a 4A lifer. Uh, you see guys like Unievsky Betancourt, Bill Hall, Joe Mather, um, Shelly Duncan, you see some guys who spent, you know, a decent amount of time in the major leagues. Uh, you know, for the most part, you know, they're generally in a, in a couple hundred plate appearances per season. So we don't have full, you know, 600, 700 plate appearances over both years, but we have some idea of, of what their overall value is like at the big league level. And when you get 24 players together, you get a pretty decent sample. Um, and what we can see is, you know, overall they performed at about replacement level, which is, you know, kind of what we would have expected based on the fact that they had to sign minor league deals where they were put through waivers in the first place. Now, what would you have done, Cameron, if you had assembled all those players and then uh, and found out that that was not the case? Well, I'd probably been the polish of the post, right? That's called publication <laughs> bias. So, I, I, hopefully I would have been more honest to that. But there, I think there is some idea to, um, you know, people have talked about a publication bias before in research when, you know, you do a study and if it, the results don't come up what you like, you never publish it and people never see the results. I and mean, I think we we try and avoid things like that, and we have published studies that generally just say, huh, I don't know what the, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, but, you know, I think it is fair to say that uh, the post is probably more likely to get published because it matched up and, uh, it matched up nicely and agreed <laughs> yeah. with our replacement level. Uh, you know, well, it's probably just a human human reaction. But I think, you know, I didn't set out, I didn't cherry pick the numbers, I didn't pick the players ahead of time. Uh, it was, you know, a, not necessarily a coincidence, but it was a, you know, fortuitous result that it lined up so nicely. Hopefully that would have posted it even if the numbers weren't correct. But, uh, you know, they were, so hooray for that. Hooray for that. Hooray for that. Uh, let's talk about current events. Uh, Dave Cameron, there was a trade in baseball on Monday. Um, the uh, the Oakland A's uh, received from the Houston Astros, Jed Lowry and Fernando Rodriguez, so I guess it's uh, some manner of hard-throwing relief pitcher. Uh, um, Houston receives in the deal uh, – the the other not the other I guess the the younger Chris Carter uh, oh ooh, right-hander uh, Brad Peacock and a uh, and a catching prospect Max Stassi um, the oh ooh because you were just discovering that Brad Peacock was in the deal yeah I, I should have no I yeah I didn't uh, I guess I was just thinking Chris Carter for some reason maybe because uh, Jeff Sullivan's uh, piece on it said that uh, Astros get power I guess they also get a decent right-handed pitching prospect too which sounds good uh, of course Jet Lowry so um, my first and perhaps the only question about the trade uh, concerns Jed Lowry, um, and Jed Lowry is interesting. Um, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong if I characterize him as follows, as a uh, a, a player um, who's been good, uh, 
playing middle infield, in particular shortstop most of the time. Uh, I think posted somewhere between, or you know, close to uh, two wins above replacement last year. Uh, once again, was limited by injury, and in fact has been limited by injury uh, over the course of it, it seems his uh, you know relatively brief major league career, but uh, has not ever really stayed healthy. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, using Jed Lowry as sort of an entry point here. Um, what do we know about the degree to which health is a skill in a player, and then how does that relate to Jed Lowry? Well, I think we know that health is something of a skill. Uh, the question is, can we identify it? So I think we can look back at like Nick Johnson and say that he just lacked the skill of staying healthy. But we didn't necessarily know that when he was coming up to the minor leagues. I mean, he's accumulated some injuries, and he spent some time on the disabled list early in his career, but it wasn't obvious at that point that that was going to be a career-long trend. I mean, Jimmer Jones missed all of his rookie year and then went on to be a you know really healthy player who stayed productive through age 40. I mean, you can't just necessarily look at guys who get injured at age 22 or 23 and say, oh, well, they're doomed to uh, be brittle, injury-prone players the rest of their careers. But certainly there is, uh, you know, lingering differences in, in durability. Um, you know, J.D. Drew, always known as a guy who, you know, couldn't stay healthy, couldn't stay on the field, wouldn't play a whole season. Um, you know, that kind of carried over into uh, conclusions about his character. But I think, you know, they certainly see that J.D. Drew is less healthy than, than a lot of other players. Um, you know, I think that there is uh, a, a difference in um, kind of maybe what you want to call it genetics or pain threshold or whatever it is, but some players just, you know, their bodies hold up better uh, to the physical rigors than others. Some guys just work harder and stay in shape and put in more conditioning time uh, and, you know, keep their bodies in better better shape to hold up to the long major league season. Um, but I think the question of whether we can identify those players ahead of time is a little bit more questionable, and I think overall our ability to predict future health is, is not great. And so this is, you know, the A's are kind of betting on, Lowry being healthier in the future than he has been in the past, and I think overall that's not a terrible bit to make. I think uh, if we were to look at a guy uh, in his mid-20s who had some injury history, we would, you know, forecast those guys forward um, and and look at kind of how other similar players have turned out. You'd find some guys who were injured early and stayed healthy later, and, you know, if you can find a guy like that who can get a discount because of his past injury history, it could be a good way to buy himself. Well, yeah, I wonder if um, if Jed Lowry is a uh, is perhaps a bargain in the same way that you have um, identified bargains among, I guess, uh, recently injured pitchers. I, I know that um, uh, you you really like the Scott Feldman signing for uh, was it the Cubs uh, who signed Scott Feldman? Yep. Um, I yep. think that you, um, you you have some optimism about the Padres signing of Freddie Garcia. Um, uh, I wonder, is there a, is there a similar thing that might exist for for field players, or is it is it a bit different? No, I think there probably is a similar thing, and I think it's probably a mindset uh, among major league front offices, and, and perhaps even more likely the field staff, you know, the managers and coaches, of um, really putting a, a high value on predictability, and not necessarily on value, but on uh, knowing that this you know this is the guy that's going to be able to fill this specific role for me all season. And I'm not going to have this, you know, constant worry of whether that guy's going to be available. I think, you know, we've seen that managers don't like unpredictability. They don't like having players who they don't know are going to be able to play every day when they come to the park. Uh, especially if you have a guy, you know, who maybe, you know, in Lowry's case might end up as the A's starting shortstop, depending on whether Nakajima can hit or not. Um, but if he's, uh, you know, he's starting shortstop and, and Bob Melvin didn't like unpredictability, he would know that there could be a potential where 
you know, he really went Lowry's bat in the lineup in an important game. He might not be able to play that day, and he had to go to a significantly inferior hitter. Uh, that can be a frustrating thing for a manager, and, you know, I can filter up to a front office where they're willing to pay for durability, they're willing to pay for dependability, um, they're kind of willing to pay for certainty, and, uh, well, you know, maybe maybe they shouldn't be. I think that's probably a um, maybe maybe a, a flaw on a front office's um, standpoint if they're not necessarily a, a proven winner. I think, you know, for a team that's not competitive, you probably want more variability out of your team than less. I, I can see an argument for wanting dependability and kind of uh, certainty in, in roster construction if you're already a 95-win team. Like the Nationals should probably be trying to, you know, close loopholes in their roster or close um, spots where they could really take a significant dive because they've already got enough talent to contend. They don't necessarily need upside, but they should be trying to limit downside. But if you're not a contender, uh, you know, I think having variability and, and kind of pushing the, the limits of what your team might be able to do uh, if all the the cards come your way is probably the best way to have a 2012 Orioles season where, you know, all the dice uh, roll in your favor and all, and you end up in the playoffs when no one expected it. So I think if you're a non-contender, you should probably want these high variable players uh, in order to maximize your chances of winning with an inferior roster. Now, now if, if we find that uh, sometimes there's a discount for players who, who have a bit of an injury history, um, is that also what makes a, a player like Michael Kadire uh, more expensive on the open market, despite the fact that maybe um, his, you know, per at bat skills uh, um, would not suggest that he would be worth that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question. We see it more with pitchers. It filters over to hitters as well. Is that players get paid for durability? A guy who consistently puts up 650, 700 plate appearances per season is going to be viewed as kind of an Iron Man, a leader, a guy who you know plays through pain, takes the field every day. Um, he's going to get all those intangible things that teams like attached to him simply because he's proven to stay healthy and, and judgments about character kind of get associated with how often a player is willing to play. Whether they should or not, that's kind of how it works. And so I think we see that those kind of highly durable, uh, you know, players with long track records of, of consistent play, um, may get overpaid and, you know, relative to their production and teams put a premium on, on that kind of certainty and, I think, you know, in general, um, we can see that paying for certainty probably doesn't pay off as well as paying for talent. Um, actually, this uh, this conversation relates, I think, um, to, to another question I was going to ask you, which which concerns the Yankees. Um, on Monday, uh, the Zips, we released the, the Zips projections for the Yankees, and um, they're not, uh, I would say they're not particularly great, and um, along these same lines of, of what we've just been discussing with regard to durability, partially the reason that the Yankees' uh, Zips projections are not great is because they have a number of players who either have been injured recently or are older or both. And uh, I wonder, is that is that the Yankees' greatest concern, or is there actually just a, a talent deficit here? I mean, there's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, I don't think there's any question that this Yankees team is less good than it has been in previous years because they've made a conscious decision to not spend any money in free agency this winter to try and get below the luxury tax threshold and reset their tax bracket. So this is, you know, a Yankees team that's going for one at all costs as they have in prior years. Uh, but at the same time, I don't, I don't think that there's a huge problem with building a roster around guys who, you know, might only be healthy for the first half of the season, uh, especially if you're a team with the Yankee revenues and the Yankee uh, resources. They can go out and basically just replace those guys if and when they do get hurt. So if you have Travis Hafter and Kevin Newplis and, you know, guys like this who probably aren't going to give you 600, 700 play appearances, do you think they might be able to give you 300 and get you through July? 
uh, I think it's, you know, worth taking a shot on guys like that, seeing what they have left, seeing if you can get some value from these guys. Uh, and then, you know, when they break down if, or if they don't perform well, uh, in June or July, you can go out and trade a mid-level prospect to um, get someone in the market who's available and uh, can play the rest of the season. Uh, you know, I don't think it's reality to expect any team to end the ro- season with the roster they begin. And I think, you know, there's some value in starting the year with a, with a roster of players who have some upside and some risk, knowing that you're going to have to replace some of those guys, um, but also understanding that you, know, you have the opportunity to do that if you need to. Right, so that's that's effectively the difference between uh, a projection we might see right for for the Yankees versus one we might see for their division rivals, the Tampa Bay Rays, in the sense that uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, you know, this is not, no surprise to anyone, have less uh, payroll flexibility, and therefore if, if they're projected for, you know, 87 wins that might be you know that might be their their ceiling at some level because they're not able to replace their uh, their better players on the fly whereas the Yankees um, are always probably going to be able to find talent around is I mean is that the case yeah I'm, I'm not sure you would even say that the Rays don't have the ability they choose not to I mean, part of it is the Rays long-term strategy of hoarding prospects and young players in order to maintain a cycle of winning every year. But I think there's, you know, been opportunities for the Rays to go out at the deadline the last couple of years and improve their team. They've just chosen not to do it. Um, you know, whether it's a good idea or not is up for debate. Uh, I think that, you know, any team that wants to can upgrade themselves this season. The price might be a little bit higher because, you know, you don't have free agents just sitting around looking for jobs, so there's fewer, you know, sellers, as it were. Um, so you might have to pay a slight premium in June or July versus what you'd get in, you know, November or December. But I think overall, you know, there are opportunities for any team to upgrade um, or replace a player who got injured. You know, even last year, you know, the, the Rays lost out of Longoria and went and got Ryan Roberts for basically nothing from the Diamondbacks when they'd given up on him. Uh, and Roberts is a pretty effective player for the Rays and um, will probably still be a pretty effective for the player for them next year. So, you know, I just think that any team looking at their total season uh, should be okay with the fact that some of the players that they start the year with won't finish the year. Um, as in that same role, because you know there's a whole other pool of players to go out and acquire midseason. Um, okay, uh, two two uh, two more issues, uh, perhaps more brief than the ones we discussed. The uh, Mark Hewlett uh, released his uh, top 15 prospect list for the Texas Rangers today. Uh, atop that list are Jerickson Profar and Mike Holt. Um, I, I think there's probably very little conversation to have with regard to um, Profar's you know candidacy as being the as being the the organization's top prospect, seeing as uh, you know, alongside Oscar Tavares, uh, maybe Dylan Bundy, he's you know number one prospect in all of baseball. People might have more questions about Michael Olt at number two, but uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that he's that he's a pretty good prospect. Uh, the thing is, there there are spots for neither of them, and there are certainly indications from um, from Jerks and Profar's Zips projection, at least, that he is ready to be uh, a major league player, right? Uh, of course, you know, there there could be. Um, some awkwardness in the transition. I'm sure that's a thing that happens to certain players. Uh, you know, some difficulty in, in in transitioning his game to the major leagues. But uh, he did have he had the third highest projected WAR um, among among all Rangers players, um, slightly above three, which is very good. Uh, what is the value now of these two players to the Rangers, and do they become more or less valuable as time goes by, and they're still not at the major league level? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is one of those areas where I'm a little less 
concerned about a player being blocked than Samara. And, uh, like, there's a lot of talk that the Rangers should just trade Elvis Andrews in order to, uh, you know, free up a spot for Profar, because Profar might be a similarly valuable player overall. Um, and he's the teacher of the Rangers, and this is two years from free agency. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how they just need to open up a spot for Profar. But I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. It's not necessarily that the Rangers have to choose between Andres or Profar. Uh, Andres and Profar is still an option, and it's one that they, they're certainly seem willing to go into the season with. Um, you know, injuries happen. You know, uh, I don't think it's any surprise in baseball. You know, we just talked about the dead Lowry situation. But, you know, even healthy players get injured. Um, any team is going to suffer uh, losses throughout the year. And if you just align your roster so that you are maximizing the value of your starting nine, uh, you may very well end up with a worse overall finish than if you had kept a 10th, 11th, 12th guy in reserve in order to fill in for the expectation that someone was going to get hurt, even if you don't know who it was ahead of time. And so whether it's Andres or Kindler or Adrian Beltre or um, even Mitch Moreland or an outfielder, if they decided they wanted to you know, experiment with getting Kindler out there, uh, Profar and Olds give the Rangers significant depth and uh, essentially allow them to cover uh, the, the chance of injury at almost any position on the field without taking a massive dive and having, you know, a really terrible player on the field uh, for a team that wants to contend. And, you know, I think there's real value in that kind of depth. So, for me, I wouldn't look at it and say, you know, the Rangers have a three-win prospect sitting in the minors being wasted. They need to make a move in order to, you know, maximize their overall value. I'd look at it and say, you know, the the amount of plate appearances that would be expected to go to the 10th best uh, player or the best non-starting position player on any on any roster is probably, you know, three 400 plate appearances. And so I think Popar is probably going to get a pretty good run at the major leagues at some point this summer. And if he doesn't start the year in the majors, that's okay. They're saving service time. Uh, they're saving future dollars. They're giving Popar a little bit more development time in the high minors. None of that's bad. Um, so I think, you know, the current Rangers situation with both uh, Profar and Old. Uh, not going into camp with obvious jobs is just fine, especially uh, given the fact that injuries occur and, and these guys will probably end up getting some, some real major league playing time. Um, and if they don't, then they can go to the minors, put up big numbers, and you know maybe an old case enhances trade value even above what it is right now. So listen, okay, a, a team has control over a player, um, a, a player that they sign for three or four years before they have to add him to the 40-man roster, correct? Okay, and then um, um, they can use uh, the next three years, or they can use they can use them anytime. Uh, but the, uh, a team also has uh, options on, on, a, on a player. Once they add them to the forty man, they can uh, they have them for for three option years. Yeah, I mean you can't actually use them anytime. There's actually an age cut off, I think, or a service time cut off at which a player can refuse to be optioned. So generally, it's the first three or four years of a player's career, and then they go away. Okay, all right. So we know that. Now it seems like what we know about age curves, we know that batters tend to get better, better, you know, up till age 27, 28, something like that. It seems like it would make sense to just to keep a, a player controlled for those three, four years, and then to to option him the next three years, so that when you eventually call him up, he's what 24, 25, uh, he's going to be at the towards the very top of his age curve, or at least as late as you can get with him uh, under team control. I'm curious, um, why doesn't every team do that with every player? Is it just because uh, the players would get angry, or is there another reason? <laughs> I mean, that's certainly one reason. Uh, I think it's an ethical argument to be made that if a player is majorly ready and you just stash him in the minors for two years, uh, you know, that's not right, and that you're, you're harming a player's 
ability to make future earnings and, you know, the, the player would probably get upset with you and be less likely to resign. Um, so there's that issue. But I think that the more act issue is just simply the time value of wins. Uh, you know, I think that we know that wins in the present are more valuable than wins in the future, and that's why, um, you know, teams give up, you know, multiple years of multiple prospects in exchange for rental players at the trade deadline or in the offseason. They'll give up, you know, multiple good players for, for you know, even just one or one and a half, two years of, of a player uh, quality major league veterans team control um, at higher higher salaries, uh, and you know they'll essentially pay a higher price for those wins in the present than they will in the future. If you look at a guy like Profar and think, okay, I think you know this season he might be worth two wins to me, uh, and if I play him all year, you know maybe that's going to cost me his age 27 season. I think he'd be a six win player. I should just hold him in the minor leagues so that I can get six wins instead of two. If that's what you're not discounting the fact that two wins in the present are more valuable than six wins in the future. And we know this in terms of um, money as, as it relates to inflation, but it also works at the major league level. Uh, if you win games in the present, you draw fans to the park, you create revenue, your ratings go up, uh, you get money that allows you to buy future wins. And so um, I think we need to put a, a real discount on future wins. Um, and, and so, you know, there's also the uncertainty factor of, you know, maybe Jerickson Profile is not going to uh, – stay healthy, and, you know, those six wins are actually going to be more like one win when he's had, you know, all kinds of knee problems and he's turned into the new Jeff Lowry. I mean, there's things that we just don't know. So between the present value of wins, creating revenue, and just the uncertainty that goes along with them, uh, you don't want to pass up guaranteed pr- production in the present for some hope of slightly larger future value five, six years down the line. Okay. Uh, Dave Cameron, I believe uh, it appears as though you have fulfilled your obligations to Fangraphs Audio. I'm curious, uh, though, uh, before we go, if there's anything that I've neglected to mention or no. Well, we can talk some more about your tardiness. Uh, do you have anything else to say about that? No, but I can probably come up with scorn to heat. <laughs> yes. I, well, again, I, that was a real mistake. It wasn't just me and my usual uh, rude rudeness. It was absentmindedness on top of it, which I feel sillier about. Um but in any case, uh, let's let's say we're done. Let's say it. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. That is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.